So it's January 29th, it's 2006, it's Sunday morning, and our title this morning, oddly enough, is Acquire the Fire. I met a couple young men that came to my house last night. There was a drought in their land, a lack of hot water, and that drought drove them to my house so they could find hot showers. And uh, just so happens that these young powerhouses for God are in town for a meeting called the Choir of the Fire. I don't know anything about a Choir of the Fire other than I like some of the music that I've heard come from it. But I'm excited anytime people are getting together to be excited about Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. There's no way to look at that badly, is there? I guess you don't look at something badly. There's no bad view to take of that. So this morning... As I began to study, I discarded the previous three messages that I had worked on this week and I uh, thought we'd talk about acquiring the fire. Y'all turn with me to Exodus. Does it surprise y'all that we're turning to Exodus this morning? Somebody, yeah, that's true. It's close to Genesis. We're only one book off my norm. Uh, somebody told me this week, do you ever preach out of the New Testament? <laughs> So that's kind of like the cliff notes. You're supposed to read that at home, you know. In Exodus 29, we're going to find a pattern that is important to God. Uh, I guess we'll start reading around verse uh, 4 of 29. Tell me when you're there. All right, you are there. Bible says, uh, verse 4, Exodus 29, Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with a tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. By its skillfully woven waistband. Put a turban on his head and attach the sacred diadem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and put headbands on them. Then tie sashes around Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by lasting ordinance. In this way, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now, you bear with me. I'm not going to read all the way through verse 21, but I'm going to skip down just a bit and pick up in verse 15. Take one of the rams... And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, and take the blood, and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. Cut the ram into pieces, and wash the inner parts and the legs. Put them with the head and the other pieces. Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of their right ears of Aaron and his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then sprinkle blood against the altar on all sides, and take some of the blood of the altar and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron, his garments, and on his sons, and on their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. This pattern basically works like this. The first thing that has to happen to priests of God is that they have to be washed. Their hands and their feet are washed. These are because your feet carry you everywhere that you go and your hands represent all the work that you do in life, the work of a man's hands. After they're washed, they have to be marked with blood of a sacrifice. And after they're marked with the blood of the sacrifice, they have to be anointed with oil. I want to talk to you this morning about that pattern, what that means in your life. Our topic's acquiring the fire. All of this has something to do with acquiring the right kind of fire. You'll find out people in this world burn with all kind of things. Paul said some burn with passion. Some burn with passion for the Lord. Most people have fire of one kind or another in their life, but it's not always the right kind of fire. 1993, I was born again. Fire from heaven lit the altar that was on my heart, and it's never gone out. There are times that the flame dimmed a bit, and I had to fan it into flame, or others had to do it for me. But when you are lit by the presence of God, when He is consuming your life, 
It'll produce the right kind of fruit everywhere you go. So it's important that we have the right kind of fire. Turn with me to Exodus 30, verse 17. This is just a page over. I want to concentrate for a minute upon this washing. Aaron and his sons had to wash with water before ministering to avoid dying. Isn't that interesting? Watch. In Exodus 30, starting in verse 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. They couldn't go to a stream and wash their hands and feet. They couldn't just catch rainwater and wash their hands and feet. Couldn't go buy a bottle of Evian. They had to get their water from a certain place to wash their hands and feet. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and for his descendants and for the generations to come. If you want to be useful for God, there's something that must be done first. Your hands and feet have to be washed. Well, what on earth is that? Some things might come to mind right away, huh? You might think of baptism. Hmm? You might think of a desire to be cleansed and that that's it. Turn with me to John. You keep your finger in Exodus because we won't stay in the New Testament long. Jesus said something to Peter that was really pretty interesting. In John 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament, verse 1, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for Him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing and wrapped a towel around His waist. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, I don't know whether you can hear it in Simon's voice as we read this, but it's shock, astonishment. Why on earth would the Master be washing his feet? Jesus replied, You do not now realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Is his heart right? Sure, his heart right. He doesn't want God to, he doesn't want Jesus to do something that he thinks is beneath him. He doesn't understand. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. And he was speaking about Judas. I'm going to shed some more light on that, but I want you to go to John 15. In what way do you think Peter was clean by having his feet washed? Is Jesus really concerned with moving, removing dirt from his feet? Is that really what Jesus cares about? We've been taught that this is just an example of servanthood. And it is that, but it's not just that. Every priest called of God, and we're supposed to be a nation of priests, must start their walk with God in a specific way. In John 15, starting in verse 3, you'll hear this word. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus is washing him with water, but it's symbolic of something. Paul told us as Christians that when we prepared for war, not against flesh and blood, but against the heavenly principality, something was supposed to be on our feet. Saints, what does Ephesians 6 tell you is supposed to be on your feet? The preparation of the Gospel. All people who are called, everybody who wants to be a priest has to be washed in something. And it's not water. See, James tells us that that basin that they looked into with the polished bottom of bronze was a mirror. 
and that that mirror is the Word of God. Whether you're looking into the Word and seeing a mirror of where you need to be cleaned up or the Word itself is washing you, cleaning you up, you have to be prepared in this way. Many Christians come in and they're excited. They get lit with a zeal from God. They're looking forward to doing something with God. But they leave the presence of God. They leave the church before they have been washed with the Word so that they don't have anything to offer. They're simply cannon fodder for the enemy. How many people have you known that shot up like a Roman candle, excited, burning brightly for the Lord, lasted all of about 15 months, and then they were back in the world? I've known lots in my lifetime. The way the church has been taught to deal with this is to say, oh, well, they were never really saved. I assure you that's not true. They were never really prepared. They didn't start at step one, which is washing in the Word. You think I'm stretching a bit to say that this baptism is washing in the Word? Turn with me to Ephesians quickly. See if Paul does not say the same thing about the way a man relates to a woman. In Ephesians 5, hear this familiar verse, 26, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her. How? With water? No. By washing her with with water through the Word. See, this baptism that you undergo... It's a baptism in the teaching, the lifestyle, the discipline and the doctrine of Jesus. It is not enough to get excited in a worship service and sing. It is not enough simply to gain zeal and want to do something for God. You must immerse yourself in His Word. And there's a reason for it. You are dirty, filthy when you're called. The things that you think to do are not the right things to do. Your gut reaction... Your base operating system is all wrong. It's corrupted and it has viruses. And God has to start somewhere with you. So when He calls a priest to Himself, the first thing that He begins to do is wash them in the Word. This is where the parable of the sower starts. The parable of the sower starts with somebody sowing seed that is the Word of God into people's hearts. Before you even get saved, you have to be sprinkled with the Word or you don't know what you're saved into. And what you're saved from. Saints, there's a lack of commitment to the Word of God in the churches. We get together and we have pep rallies for Jesus. Thousands strong. And then the Bible's going red all week. Because it's not popular. It's not exciting. It's not like the video iPod or the Xbox or whatever else might grab your attention. And yet, when you learn to engage this text, it will shake you in a way that no video game or movie can compete with. Period. When you learn to engage this text, it will stir you in your soul in a way that causes you to hunger for more. The problem is most have never learned to eat the Word. When you learn to eat the Word, when you learn to begin to devour it, it will consume you and your hunger will grow like nothing else in your life. It will become your passion. The Word needs to be our passion. Not to study so that you're smart. Not to show others what you know. It's because this is how we live. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The word for commands is mitzvahs. It's not just a few little sentences in the New Testament. How many of you can even name the books of the Old Testament? Can you start in Genesis and go all the way through Malachi? Malachi? Now, this is not a memory test. I'm just asking you. Examine yourself and see if you're committed to being a student of the Word. You should be able to have somebody quote three or four verses from any book and you know where it is. If you're falling short of those kind of things, that's okay. Do better tomorrow. I fall short all of the time. There are days I can't find books in my Bible and I'm a preacher. But what I'm trying to tell you is at some point we have to commit ourselves to the teaching of the Word. It ought to be on your forehead. It ought to be on your hands. When you wake up and when you lie down, when you go in and when you come out, it ought to be there. Now, I know we thought those were just Jewish rituals for a people that needed to be bound up. 
that was given to people to teach us the right way to relate to the Word. The mezuzah was not just there as an ornament on the door. The mezuzah was there to show you everywhere you go, you're supposed to be living, carrying the Word of God with you. We want to talk about acquiring the fire? Let's talk about being washed in the Word first. Otherwise, you're an unfit container for the fire of God. He couldn't use you and He couldn't trust you. Let's be discipled. Get discipled. Learn to be like Jesus. And then He can trust you with all of His power and all of His authority. You think you're unique. Everybody wants to be unique. I'm different. I'm an exception to the rule. It may take others years to study, years to begin to comprehend, but not me, buddy. I got touched by God in a new way that nobody's ever had. James and John thought that. What did they want to do with the fire of God? Burn everybody around them. You'll find out that is not at all the message that God gives us. The pattern that is laid down for you is laid down for a specific reason. There's a reason you start with the washing in the Word first and then move to the other areas. This pattern is what you will minister to other people. You have to have a firm grasp on just how dirty, how filthy, and how corrupted your ways are before you can go speak with anybody else. But it's not to tell them how dirty and filthy and corrupted their ways are. You just have to know the depth from which you were pulled out of to be able to effectively talk to other people. We'll get there though. 1 Timothy 3, 5 says that you were given birth through a washing in the Word and renewed by the Holy Spirit. See, because after, what happens is after you get this washing, what was the pattern? Aaron and his sons received the sacrifice for their sins first. You need to know that before you were a minister of God, before you were a priest, you had to receive a sacrifice for your sins first. Why on earth would God make you receive a sacrifice for your sins before you were fit to minister to other people about theirs? It's not just so that your sin would be dealt with. That's what you've been trained to think theologically, huh? Well, my sin had to be dealt with before I could talk to others about theirs. That's not it at all. God wanted you to be aware of your sin so that you would deal gently with other people about theirs. How many of you, if you had lived in Christ's day, would have walked up to a scene of all of the religious leaders in the day ready to throw rocks at a woman because she had been caught in sin. And everybody the consensus was, burn them, throw them out, hurt her. How many of you would have done what Jesus did? See, that heart comes from somebody that understands man's weakness, that understands the power of sin in people's lives. Until you're thoroughly acquainted to what you have been saved out of, and the mercy that has happened in your life, you're not fit for God's power. All you are is a little Roman candle running around, going up brightly, but having no lasting effect. That's not what we want to be. We want to be like God, the sun rising every day, burning out all of the wickedness on the earth, shining in a way that people can depend upon it. After you receive this sacrifice, your ears are marked. Why would your ears be marked? And not just your ears, it's actually your right ear, your right thumb, your right... Is Mandy in here? What's your big toe called? Your great toe. Mandy's a therapist. She learned anatomy and physiology of the body. Why is your big toe called your great toe? Because without it, you can't walk right. God wanted on the side of man's strength His right hand, His right ear, His right big toe to be marked with the fact that He was a sinner and had to be redeemed. Everywhere you go, when your strength goes before you, you see your weakness covered under blood. And when you do that, and you have to minister to little Judah here because he's fallen or he's hurt or he's gotten confused about God. You don't minister in your strength and your power and all the great things you did. You can say, I was dirty and had to be washed in the Word. My life began to change as I accepted the doctrines of Christ. And then He marked me with His blood. He marked me with an object of mercy. Then you're fit to minister. But you'd be incomplete if that's all you had. Turn with me to Exodus 30. We'll be in verse 22. Y'all awake? Y'all with me this morning? Nobody mad at me yet? Yep. 
Have you noticed in America we want the easy way for everything? Billions of dollars are being spent right now for something. Billions. A pill that will make you skinny. Everybody knows there's another way to get skinny, but we just don't like it because it is too hard. Well, churches have done the very same thing. Boil down all of the gospel to the easiest elements. Tell people just the attractive parts, the greasy grace and the sloppy agape. Do whatever it takes to build a big crowd so that it will look like we're doing something for God. Who cares whether there's long-term fruit or lasting benefit? Let's just look like we're doing something for God. And it's the easy way. It doesn't require you to be thoroughly washed in the Word. In fact, most churches will take somebody six months old in the Lord and place them in a position of leadership for no other reason than they don't want to lose them and they know if they give them some responsibility, they'll come back each week. Even though the Word that we're washed in says, do not put a novice in authority. Paul spent 14 years gaining revelation in the desert. And in 14 months' time, we're ready to lead other men, right? It took the Apostle Paul 14 years, but it takes us 14 months. Here recently, I ran into a man in a coffee shop. Fresh out of rehab. Girlfriend, fresh out of rehab. A zeal. A zeal for God. Other people saw it. He had never been washed in the Word. Not a real strong stain of blood upon his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right toe because he didn't know enough yet. He'd just been born. And he's already leading hundreds of people at another church. That doesn't sound smart to me. Now, I'm not picking on the other church. They're doing everything that they know to do. And there's good fruit in that other church. Fruit that I would be proud to have as a pastor. But that doesn't mean that's not a mistake. It's not just about acquiring a fire. It's about acquiring the fire. The right kind of fire. We're going to find out not everything that lights your altar is of God. Not everything that burns in you with passion is God. There's a right way to get this. Let's look at the anointing oil. First, you have to be washed. Then, you're anointed. The washing involves learning about the sacrifice. Then you're anointed. Then you're fit to minister. This anointing oil in verse 22 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much, that is 250 shekels. Don't you like that the ancient Hebrew text did the math for you? Told you what half as much is? Half as much that is, 250 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, all according to the sanctuary shekel, and a hen of olive oil. Well, what on earth is all of that? You know what that is? That's the most precious substances in existence at the time. Have you ever heard in the ancient world that spices were valuable and that they were traded in the place of gold and silver many times? These are the most costly things that the people had. And they got them in large quantities here. Why? Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils, and the basin with its stand. You shall consecrate them and they will be most holy and whatever touches them will be holy. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so that they may serve me as priest. Say to the Israelites, this is my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It is to be sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. Why go through these elaborate schemes? Why go through such detailed instruction? For 1,600 years before Jesus and in the time of Jesus while He was living, this is how priests were consecrated. And why? 
Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that the reason these things were written down was to serve you upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And what do you learn about the anointing oil? The anointing of God. It's only for the priest. The world can't receive it. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? I'll give you another counselor. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot receive or accept Him because it doesn't know Him. This anointing oil is just for priests. It's made of the most precious substances on the planet. And if you try to copy it or counterfeit it, you're to be thrown out of the people of God. How many people do you think there are walking around with a fragrance that smells good but is not God's? How many people have tried to take the anointing of God and put it on something other than the work of God? I can assure you, it's an awful lot. We mistake zeal for anointing. We mistake talent for anointing. We mistake enthusiasm for God's presence. Those things are not God. They can be. God's presence is when you have been washed in the Word. You have been marked by the blood and anointed by His Spirit. And you know what everybody else will say about it? Uh, You're drunk. Isn't that what they said in Acts 2.15? You're drunk. What else does they say? In Corinthians, second chapter, oh, that's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. Why doesn't it make sense to people when you're truly anointed of God? Why doesn't it make sense? Because they haven't been washed in the Word. They don't understand what operates you. Why you do the things that you do. Why when your boss slanders you and says horrible things about you, you don't turn and do the same. That seems foolish. It seems stupid. After all, God wants you to defend yourself, right? Or does He? Hmm. Does God sometimes want you to defend yourself? Yeah, Paul and Silas did it. Does He want you every time to defend yourself? So how do you know the difference? Oh, Not only do you have to be washed in the Word and marked by the blood, you have to be led by the Spirit. This is why the 8th chapter of Romans says, as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Not as many who wear Christian t-shirts, not as many as have Christian bumper stickers or go to Christian meetings or hang out in the right crowds or listen to the right kinds of music. None of those are the litmus test for Christian. What is the litmus test? You're either led by His Spirit or you're not. His Spirit and His Word don't contradict each other. The reason you have to be washed in the Word to be led by the Spirit is so that you'll understand what He's saying to you. Anybody in here ever wanted to be a prophet? What if God spoke to you and told you to lay on your side for 180 days, to shave your head with a sword and to cook your food over foul things? Because He told Ezekiel that. You know what you'd do? Oh, that can't be God. Why would you say that can't be God? Because based on your knowledge of the Word, God wouldn't do that, right? Sounds like Ezekiel had to have a thorough knowledge of God's Word to know that God would do that. How about Abraham? How many of you want to take your children today? Go to a place the Lord will show you three days in the distance and raise a knife over the head fully intending to kill your children. God would never do that, right? He did it. A knowledge of the Word teaches you to be receptive to the leading of the Spirit. That's why we don't throw away any part of this book. Period. Never. That's why none of it is rendered as non-applicable. You might relate to parts of it differently at different times in history. There's no temple. (laughs) It's kind of hard to do some of the things it says must be done at the temple, isn't it? But none of it is useless. You have to be baptized into the Word of God and you have to be anointed with the oil of God. Having received a washing, a sacrifice, and an anointing, then we are fit to minister. We tell others that we were stained, yet cleansed. Sinful, yet declared righteous. Smelling of self, stinking of self, yet anointed with the fragrance of God's Spirit. We minister as those those who have received mercy so that we can minister mercy. You want to be anointed of God with fire? You want His fire to touch your altar? Then you have to be concerned with what He's concerned about. You have to know what His Word says. You have to be anointed with His Spirit having received His mark. And then when you meet somebody that is hurting, when you meet somebody who needs Jesus, 
Somebody who needs a doctor, friends. Not somebody who thinks they're all right, have no problems, I'm okay, you're okay. Somebody whose life stinks with sin. You don't sneer. You don't look down. Instead, you see in them something that was in you. And yet, there is hope. That's the mark of a Christian. That's the kind of fire that God can anoint. That's the kind of fire God gives from heaven. What did Jesus tell James and John when they wanted to burn the village for not receiving them? What did He tell them? You don't know what spirit you're of when you say that. You don't know what spirit you're of, friends, when you come off as judgmental and condemning and it was not led by God. Boy, you talk about a message for Eric. There's a message for Eric because my base operating system is to identify weakness, to despise it, and to attack it even if it's in other people. That's not very good, is it? And yet God will take my weaknesses and make them strengths. Now when I see weakness, I have to learn to see mercy, to see hope because God has shown me mercy and hope. You want to acquire fire from God? You need to know what lights God's fire. You know, the Doors sang a song a long time ago. The fire they were asking to be lit with. They probably got it and probably receiving it still. But that's not God's fire. What do you burn for? What are you really excited about? Do you want the miracle working power of God in your life so that you have miracle working power? Or are you wanting to see the chains fall off those who are bound? Wanting to see people who have brought ashes and have nothing else receive something beautiful? Are you longing to see justice for those that are oppressed? Is that what moves your heart? Or like most of America, do you simply want to be entertained? A.W. Tozer wrote a book and a friend of mine named Craig was reading me a quote from it. One of the things in the book said, Lord, please help me to turn away from the toys in my life that compete for my heart's affections. How many toys do you have in your life that are competing with the Lord's affection? We need to learn to be interested in what God is interested in. Then His fire can really come. Oh, you'll have another fire otherwise. And I don't just mean judgment. I mean since the beginning, man has done something that is other fire. But we'll get to that. Turn with me to Leviticus 9. So, golly, Eric, this stuff's awful serious. I mean, couldn't you just tell us something good? It is good if you take it seriously. You know that the day of the Lord is both called glorious and dreadful. How can a thing be glorious and dreadful? How could it both be good and bad? How could it be exciting and also horrifying? How could something be that way? Is it what the Asians say? Is there a yin-yang principle within God? Now, I don't think so. So what is it? How could a thing be glorious to one and dreadful to another? Because those that had been washed in His Word have been marked by His blood and anointed by His Spirit are ready. Having judged themselves daily, seeing themselves as objects of mercy and ministering mercy to others, they are ready. So their appearing of God is a glorious day. But to those that have refused to judge themselves, that have scorned everyone else, that have not longed to see the widow and the orphan's cause taken up, it is a dreadful appearing. Why glorious for one and dreadful for the other? Both looking at the same event? Your perspective's different depending on whether you have died to your own desires or lived for your desires. What is it in you that you have passion for? Your desires or God's desires? And do you know what God's desires are? The Bible tells us to find out what pleases the Lord. Those words were written to people that memorized most of the 39 books of the Old Testament, that lived in the day that Jesus walked and taught and had first-hand knowledge of the apostles' lives, and they were still told, find out what pleases the Lord. Sometimes you have to search the heart of God. And when you do that, you'll find out your unique purpose in your life 
that God can light a fire in you to achieve. Y'all in Leviticus 9? Let's start in Leviticus 9, verse 5. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near the Lord. Near, I'm sorry, came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Wait, what did he say? This is what the Lord has commanded you to do. Why? So that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. You want God's fire? Then there is an interesting thing that must be done. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Who comes first? Who has to have atonement made for them first? Yourself. You have to remove the plank from your eyes so that you can help your brother with the speck in his. Now, we know those Scriptures, and we know from where they're drawn. But how often do you live that out? Tell the truth. You see yourself with a speck and your brother with the plank, don't you? I do. I do all of the time. I have to remind myself that there was an entire log jam in my eye that God has been weeding out for the last 13 years. And that in that perspective, my brother's speck seems very small. The closer an object is to your eye, the bigger it seems, isn't it? the further away that it is. I mean, think about this. You can hold up a penny, right? And if it's close enough to your eye, it'll block out the entire sun, though it's many times bigger than our earth. That's the same way you should look at sin in other people's lives. The sin in your life ought to seem much bigger than the sin in theirs. In that way, you are always operating from a place of humility, a place of mercy, a place that God can bless. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them so uh, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as the sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, the covering of the liver, the sin offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide were burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood. He sprinkled it against the altar on all the sides. They handed him the burnt offering, piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the inner parts, and the legs, and burned them on the top of the burnt offering on the altar. Now, I still haven't gotten to what I want to read you in this. And it can be kind of monotonous, can it? He burned this, and he separated this, and he did that. And it seems incredibly detailed, and all you've ever heard is that that was to bind these people up. Right? To tie them over to sin. Well... That is a big, big part of it. There is no doubt in the New Testament resounds absolutely clear. But why do you think He told them to wash the inner parts? The sacrifices that would be pleasing to God were those that had been cleansed, even in their most inner being. What made Jesus an acceptable sacrifice to God? Lots of people have died for their cause. Lots of people have. Didn't Gandhi die? Lord, watch the movie Braveheart. (laughs) We'll quote that as fact in history, right? People die for their causes every day. What made Jesus different? No matter how far you went into His internal being and His thoughts, you found something that was pure and clean. Now, all of this sacrifice, this sacrifice, that, each part teaches us something beautiful. But right now, I just want to look at the overview. Watch, it's in these next few verses. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering, as he did with the first one. Verse 16. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. If there's 130 items in this list, and I have no idea how many are in the list as far as steps, If none of them are important to you or stand out, this verse should be important to you. 
God has a prescribed way that you have to approach Him. He has a set pattern that you have to approach Him. These things were laid down for you for your benefit so that you could look at the prescribed way and see something for your life about it and glean something from it. Aaron did this in the prescribed way. Would you agree with that? Doesn't that verse say that? So what he heard from God, he did like God said to do it. And something neat happens. Pick up in verse 23. Moses and Aaron then went to the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. When you do things God's prescribed way, whatever way He has led you by His Spirit and by the counsel of the Word, then the glory of God can appear. Fire can come from heaven and answer your very need. But it has to be the prescribed way. Well, what's wrong with that? Eric, why is that a problem? Well, the prescribed way is always resisted. It's always something that is hard for you to do. That's why this way is called narrow. And those who find it, few. Get that. Narrow and those who find it, few. Now, in every church, the pastor stands up and tells the people, the path to destruction is broad. And there are only a few who find it, implying those in here, right? Their flock. I want to tell you now, I've lived long enough to find out that's not true. Among those who are supposed to be Christians in church, only a few make it. Well, I don't like that very much. I'm sorry. Israel was purchased by God, bought, literally redeemed at birth by God, called sons of God. By the way, how many people over 20 years old that left uh, in the Exodus made it to the promised land? How many? Two. I would call that a few. Two million go out, two make it in. Wouldn't you call that a few? We say God. God always has a remnant. He's reserved a remnant even to this present day. What are you going to do to stay in that remnant? If 80% of this nation claims to be a Christian, we have a problem in the woodpile somewhere, don't we? How many people have you ever met that when you walk up to them and you say, Steve did this the other night. He pointed to people at, in this Bible study group and said, tonight if you died... Where would you go? People say, I'll be with you in heaven, brother. You go all the way around the room. That's a good thing to do. I like to put people on the spot sometimes. You need to be in that valley. The problem is everybody lies. If you do that to a thousand people, maybe one in a thousand said, brother, I'm going to bust hell wide open. It wouldn't be deception if they understood what they were doing. There is a prescribed way, but there's also a way that seems right to man. And the end of it leads to destruction, but it seems right. Lord, I'm a good person. I go to church. I listen in Sunday school. Whatever a man's heart wants, his mind finds a way to justify. Brad Lively taught me that. as a quote from somebody else, but I'm going to give it to Brad. Whatever a man's heart wants, his mind justifies. Your ways seem right to you. But there's a prescribed way from God. And we have to figure out what it is. You have to seek the Word. Seek His will for your life. It is not okay to coast through life and think that you will walk with Him in eternity. It doesn't work that way. And all of our preaching about mercy, I'm afraid some misunderstand. You cannot live like hell and walk into heaven. It does not work that way. Jesus is a holy God. He's been appointed as judge over all mankind. And he would be a fool and God would be mocked to allow most of what goes on in Christianity in his kingdom. It will not occur. But do they have a fire? The prescribed way is always resisted. We want the godly fire, but we're not always willing to do what it takes to get it. This washing is always resisted. In Luke 7.30, and don't turn there, I'll just tell you, I rarely ever lie when I'm preaching, just occasionally on Sundays. 
Somebody understood that. The Pharisees, the Bible says, rejected God's purposes for their life. Do you know why? Since they refused to be baptized by John. You know what their problem was? We are Jews. We're saved from birth. We have no need to go out and repent to change our direction. We're already on the right direction. That's the fastest way to put a ceiling between you and God is to think, I got it all right. It's everybody else who's got something wrong. I'm okay. Everybody else is wrong. And yet, is that prevalent? The way for God's fire is always resisted. Always. The washing's resisted. You know what else is resisted? The sacrifice. You remember Jesus is talking with Peter? Who do men say that I am? And He gives a great answer and we get the blessing upon Peter because he received the revelation. And then what happens? Jesus begins to speak about dying and being raised to life on the third day. And what's Peter say? Oh no, Lord, never. This will not happen to you. Well, what about it was offensive? None of us like the idea of doing nothing wrong and being punished. None of us like that idea. That feels like such injustice that we think that we are too good to suffer that way. Boy, didn't Jesus set the example for us in that regard though? The Word teaches you that if you are blasphemed, I guess that's not the right word, if you are ridiculed, persecuted, then the glory of God rests upon your shoulders. And yet when you're ridiculed and persecuted, how do you feel? Not too glorious. Sounds like we need to wash in the Word some more, huh? I can tell you from first-hand experience how difficult it is to have people slander you. Hurts even more if they're people that should know better. And yet, Jesus never did anything wrong. Not only did they slander Him, they slaughtered Him. The way to God's fire is always resisted. Peter should have known better. And out of a good desire, he opposed the work of God. And you know what Jesus told him? Get behind me, Satan. Think about the next part. You always have in mind the things of men. In other words, the thought that is ruling you, what comes to mind is not always God. Time to go get washed in the Word again, Peter. Thank God his ministry was not over yet, huh? Peter didn't always get it right either. Jesus didn't throw him away though, did he? The same guy that couldn't stand up for Jesus at the moment he was being crucified could stand up for him after he had been through the whole process of being washed in the Word, of being marked with the blood and anointed by the Spirit. He could stand up and 3,000 people got saved. Let me ask you something. Do you think Peter understood he was an object of mercy? Oh, yeah. That's why it took three times for Jesus to restore him. There should be humility in your preaching. And what I'm calling your preaching is the way you live your life. Because the Bible says you're like a letter written to everybody about God. Your life is a letter. In addition to the sacrifice being resisted, the Spirit is always resisted. The way of the Spirit will seem like foolishness to you. That's why you have to retrain yourself. Leviticus 16.12, and again, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to tell you, says that when you make an offering, the fire has to come from somewhere. What did God just do? In Leviticus 9, what did He just do? He lit an altar with His fire, didn't He? Every subsequent work of God, every work of God that has ever been done started with God's touch. Anything that men did after that was taking fire from God to someone else who needed it. But it always originates with God. You are never the source of anything. If people begin to praise David here and say, oh, David is such a talented speaker. David is such an anointed guy. I think David is awesome. And anything David does will be blessed. That could be good things, right? Especially if David's totally rooted in who his source is. But what happens to men the higher they get lifted up? They begin to see themselves as what people call them instead of just a receptacle for God, just a conduit for God. There is no fire from God except that which has already been given and transferred from one person to another. If you're going to make an offering, you had to go get fire from the altar that God lit. 
I'm preparing you for the next verse. Chapter 10 of Leviticus. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when He said, Among those who approach Me I will show Myself holy in the sight of all of the people I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Why would God strike these guys dead? Doesn't that seem kind of harsh? I've been in email correspondence with a friend that told me that God would not strike people dead because He's a God of love. And that anything that we read in the Bible that seems to say that must not be inspired. You know, at what point... If you begin to pick and choose the statements in the Bible that are and are not inspired, at what point does it just degenerate into tell me what I want to hear? And only that which I want to hear. Why would God strike these people dead? Some have said, well, it's because they're drunk. Why would they say that? Because a few verses later, in addition to being told to get a good haircut, told, don't go into the temple drunk. Didn't say don't drink wine. He said don't go into the temple drunk. Isn't that interesting? Why would you have to tell him that? I thought it was all grape juice. Oh, we'll leave that subject, okay? He said, oh, he struck them dead because they were drunk. No, that's not why he said he struck them dead. Why did he say he struck them dead? Unauthorized fire. They burned with something. They went out to do work for God. But God was not the source. The difference between acquiring fire and acquiring the fire is the source. You can have good motives. Peter did. But be totally in the devil's will. Unauthorized fire is fire that God did not light. Fire that is not pleasing to God because He's not the source of it. Now let me ask you something. In the last 20 years, because God lit a fire in some charismatic and Pentecostal churches, lots of denominational churches began to mimic what they saw. Is that taking fire from the same source or is that a counterfeit fire? Well, it depends. What was the source? Did God give it to them? Or are they just mimicking what they saw to build a bigger church? And I said, well, if you're picking on the denominations, well, let's pick on the Charismatics and Pentecostals too, of which I count myself a number. We say that we're anointed because we speak in other tongues. That's such a small part of it. You can speak in other tongues and be so backslidden that you barely know where God is. We've degenerated to the point in our charismatic and Pentecostal churches where we look for feathers and seek jewels and scrape up dust off of the floor as if God's interested in those things. And all the meanwhile, we leave people who are slaves to sin sitting in the seat, still chained. We rush to the front of a church to be knocked down by the power of God and could care less about how to walk in the power of God. This is not acquiring the fire. It's a fire. It's not God's. I'm not telling you that any of those practices are wrong. You just have to be careful that you're interested in what God is interested in. That doesn't always build big churches. What do you think would happen here if two people got struck dead? Would it be a bigger service next week or a smaller service? Means we'd go from 20 to 18, huh? In the early church, when God began to judge the church through people like Ananias and Sapphira, said, why on earth did they get judged so harshly? Because they were the people of God. Judgment begins with us. It's trailing behind everybody else. But if it starts with you and you get it right in your life, you're being prepared for the glory and fire of God to come in your life. It'll be a glorious day on that day. If you wait, if you store up all of your judgment for that day in the future, it would be a dreadful day. I was the kind of kid that would rather take 150 spankings in one instant than to be spanked once every day. I'd rather just take it like a man and get it over with. Unfortunately, the Christian life is not like that. It involves dying to self every day, not just a one-time event. You are not saved because of a one-time event. 
Well, I was saved in 1993. Well, that's great. And if you weren't saved in 94, 95, 96, 97, and every day thereafter, you're on dangerous ground, my friend. Every day you must take up your cross and be willing to die to self daily. Not every fire that hits an altar is of God. These guys were struck dead for that. Turn with me to Exodus 37. i got about five minutes and I want to cram in one other thing. Well, Eric, what is the pattern? What do we need to do then? How do we avoid... Wow, I can't find Exodus 37. So much for all of my telling you about learning the Older Testament, huh? Here it is. How do we avoid this? Do you think Nadab and Abihu were bad people? I can assure you they weren't. Any more than Uzzah was who touched the ark or so many other people that messed up something in the ceremonial law and suffered greatly for it. They deviated from the prescribed way and they received a harsh, swift judgment. Why? Is that bad? Is that mean? Does that show how wicked God is? It shows how merciful God is. He stopped them from doing something that would have ruined the prescribed way for generations to come. He stopped them from messing up what you're supposed to be reading and seeing is the right way to live. Law was never a means of salvation. And what I'm calling law is everything in these 39 books. It was supposed to show you the right way to live. So the men who were carrying it out and their lives were carrying it out, they had a profound responsibility to get it right so that those of us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come would have the right example. And when people began to deviate and get it wrong and they loved the Lord, He took them out quickly so that they didn't ruin it. He preserved the right way to live. What are responsibilities on you? Your container for His Holy Spirit and the way that generations before the cross never got to see. You think you have a greater or lesser responsibility? You want to acquire the fire? Let's learn here. Exodus 37. Can y'all give me four or five more minutes? Y'all do that? That'll be all right? Matt, that's all right with you? See, I always got one that'll agree, and he's bigger than most of you. <laughs> There's only one door in this church, and it's over there, and the reason I preach between you and it... You know, in Exodus 37? Okay. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. What is, uh, what is this ark? What are we talking about? Are we talking about a boat that Noah was in? No, that's a different ark, isn't it? We're talking about a basket that Moses floated in, right? No, that's a different ark. What is this ark? Both of those arks, though, by the way, Noah's and Moses, that's something in common. What is it? That they floated? No, no, it's not that they floated. What was it, Brad? They carried something. They carried something. This ark is no different. It carries something. What did the ark represent? God's presence, His glory, His power, His fire, if you will. You remember the book Raiders of the Lost Ark or the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? What happened when the Nazis opened it? Oh, y'all didn't watch that. Y'all are godly. I forget. Don't watch any movies. Yeah, they thought fire came out from it. Where did they get that idea? Because God answered His people from heaven by fire many times in the Old Testament. Elijah called fire from heaven because his life was right before God. Okay, this, this ark though, it's made of acacia wood. Look, right here, that's an acacia tree. See that? Some of the acacia trees though, you know how a weeping willow stretches all the way to the ground? You know, the branches stretch all the way to the ground? Well, acacias do that too, but there's nothing limber about their branches. They're stiff. They're thorny. There's three or four different kinds, but they all have something in common. They have big thorns on them. It's really neat though. In the desert, their roots go down very, very deep. They find water. So wherever you see acacia trees, you know there's underground water somewhere. And because they find water, there's another property. They like to grow where there are gentle breezes. This means to desert people, they know that they can go sit under the shade of a tree, find a gentle breeze, and if they dig long enough, find water. They call them air conditioners. They, they literally refer to them as air conditioners in Israel today. It's a joke uh, that the nomadic people knew. But he made this ark of acacia wood. You are a container for something, just like this ark. 
You're a container for God's divine presence and you too are made out of acacia wood. Acacia wood was this thorny substance and before you could do anything with it, the first thing that had to be done is natural defenses had to be stripped away. You know what I remember that's the hardest about being a teenager? Eric, Elliot, you know what I remember that's hardest about being a teenager? You have to be so cool, so tough, so strong all of the time. And what's sad is some people never grow out of that. Go work in a plant for a while. You know what you see? You see teenagers with bigger pot bellies and bigger toys everywhere. This facade that is carried around, the thorny outer part that says, I'm tough, I'm okay, not a thing in the world wrong with me. God has to strip that away before anything can be done that is useful to Him. Bezalel went out and got some acacia wood. That meant that he had to uproot it from the earth. He had to tear its roots out of the soil. He then had to begin to strip the thorny bark away from it. Sounds a lot like salvation, doesn't it? Then he does something else to it. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out, and made a gold mounting around it. How do you get gold on wood? You have to hammer it into the wood. I want you to understand something. Being an acacia tree yourself, not only did you have a thorny outer part that had to be torn away before you could be useful, the divinity of God doesn't stick to you easily. He has to pound it in you through experience. He has to show you through repeated contact with Him that is sometimes hard how it sticks to you. You learn from His discipline. You learn from your experiences how to act like He acts, how to walk like He walks. And if anybody says it comes any other way, I wonder if they've received it themselves. You ever had somebody try to pray the armor of God on you? Here, let's pray the armor of God on you. It's a lifestyle that has to be lived. It can't be prayed on. If you do try to pray it on, you're praying them into the right kind of lifestyle. Well, the divinity of God, although you're credited with it right away, righteousness, been made a participator in the divine nature, for it to show up in your actions, it has to be hammered in by a master craftsman. That's both discipleship from God and from the fivefold ministry. It's washing in the Word overlaid it with gold both outside and inside. Or rather, we should say inside and outside because it starts in the heart and works its way outward. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet. Four gold rings and fastened it to the four feet. With two rings on one side and two rings on the other. He fastened four gold rings and fasten them to the four feet. What are your feet supposed to be shod with? Preparation of the Gospel. As an ark for God, not only are you stripped from your outer thorny facade, but then you are hammered with gold inside and out and given a thorough foundation in the Word of God that is, comes from His four Gospels. Four witnesses to all of mankind of the life Jesus lived and the life that you're supposed to live supposed to be your very foundation. You have to be washed in the Word. Then He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides and the ark to carry it. How would an ark be carried? We know Uzzah did it wrong. How did Uzzah do it? He put it on a cart with an oxen. That was wrong. How was it supposed to be carried? On the shoulders of men. When God wants to show His glorious presence on the earth, He's supposed to do it through you. That means He's looking for Caitlin. He's looking for Julie. He's looking for Judah. He's looking for somebody that He can show this through. In what way do you show the presence of God? By being robbed of your thorny exterior, hammered with gold inside and out, founded in the Gospel and carried by something. What's two the number of in the Bible? The covenant. You are carried in life by the covenant that you've made with God. The extent to which you adhere to the covenant shows His divinity in your life. You're carried on it. What separates you apart from everyone else is that you're in covenant with Him. Otherwise, you'd be just like everyone else. Then He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made the atonement cover of pure gold. The atonement cover of pure gold. 
the atonement that happened in your life, it's got no acacia in it. Did you notice that? The rest of the ark has acacia wood, hammered gold into that. But the atonement cover, it was pure gold. What's gold in the Bible? Divinity. The atonement that happened in your life had nothing to do with you. We already said, you were stained and yet cleansed. You were stunk. You stank. There was a stank. (laughs) And yet, you were made fragrant. The atonement that happened in your life was pure God. Nothing else. That's your message. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub... You know why they're hammered gold, but it doesn't say they're cherubim? I mean, they're uh, acacia? They were heavenly to start with, but they're heavenly creatures that were made, not pulled out of the earth. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. At the two ends, he made them of one piece with the cover. The cherub had their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other, looking for the cover. You know what the cherubim symbolized? Chronicle says it. So does Second Samuel. It says God was enthroned above them. If you have Him hammered into you, if you have been stripped of your outward appearance and your thorny protection, if you are founded in the Gospel and carried by His covenant, if the atonement that happened in your life you understand is the pure work of God and nothing else, then His chariot throne rides with you in life wherever you go. His presence is with you above those cherubim all your days. What's the difference between that kind of fire and the fire that Nadab and Abihu had? The source. They had good ideas that were not God ideas. They wanted to go do something for their own reasons. They were caught up in their own zeal. But not in what God wanted. Friends, most of the church today, and that includes us, have our own ideas about life what we would like to do, what we would like to see happen. If the source is not from God's altar, then it's unauthorized fire. We have no right to invoke God's name into situations that we've designed. We only have the right for His presence to lead us into the situations that He's designed. I want to get this right. I want you to get it right. I want to acquire the right kind of fire, not just go to a pep rally. And to do that, we're going to close with this. What has to happen to you is you have to dedicate yourself to the discipleship of the Word. You have to wear on the sign of your strength the mark of your weakness, your stain, and Him removing it. And then you have to be anointed with His fragrant oil and accept no other anointing. So people are drawn to you for other reasons? Reject it all. Let people only see His anointing in you then his fire will go with you everywhere you go. You won't be able to get away with it, away from it if you wanted to. Like Jonah. You can run and he'll hunt you down because you belong to him. Y'all stand up. I encourage you to dedicate yourself to him today.